0: the incomparable number 478 september 2019
1: welcome back everybody to the incomparable i'm your host jason snell in this episode we are reconvening our miyazaki club we are walking through the films of the great japanese director haya miyazaki as selected by john siracusa who joins me now john
0: welcome I don't know if I would call Miyazaki a director. You always introduce him as a director, but I always think of him having seen all these little documentaries about him as an animator first. He is an animator, he's a writer, director, animator, enthusiast right. of, of uh of aviation and weather. But if you watch him if you watch him quote unquote directing the movies he's supposedly directing, what he seems to do most of the time is A, draw all the storyboards and B look over every frame of every drawing from every other animator and tell them what's wrong with it. And and draw on them and fix it. Yeah. All right.
1: And uh, joining us to talk about the latest selection, which I'll mention in a minute, are uh, two other uh, panelists. Aline Sims is here. Hello.
2: Hello. This movie made me sad. That's my opening statement.
3: Okay. (laughs) People don't even know what the movie is yet, but we'll get there. Mm. Steve Lutz is also here. Hi, Steve. Hello, Jason. I'm excited to get to talk about this movie that is also a weird Miyazaki movie, but in a different way than the usual weirdness of Miyazaki (laughs) movies. It's
0: true. I've got my one sentence opening statement, too, which is that I think this is the most adult Miyazaki movie not adult in the way you're thinking and probably also not adult in that other way that you're thinking but definitely the most adult and it's also the
3: latest yes I agree I'm very curious about what the second adult way of thinking about this first one
0: is the sexy way the second one is the like made for adults rated r and the third one that I'm thinking of is contains uh story plot points and emotional beats that are mostly of interest to adults got it
1: yep it is 2013's The Wind Rises, which is as of this uh, this day. This is the last Miyazaki movie uh, because he retired. For now. Until he didn't retire and is mm-hmm. making another movie. But for mm-hmm. now, the last Miyazaki movie, 2013's The Wind Rises, which I saw in the movie theater. The only Miyazaki movie I've seen in a movie theater. And it is... Unlike his other work that I've seen in some ways and exactly like his other work (laughs) in other ways, which is one of the fascinating things. The more of his movies that I watch, the more I get who this guy is, kind of. And if you are wondering, the wind rises. Does it involve weather and wind? Yeah. Uh, Are Mm. there lots of clouds?
2: Mm hmm.
3: I got a question, Jason. Any airplanes? Are there aircraft?
1: (laughs) Oh, boy, are there aircraft. There are so many aircraft you
0: would not believe. Off-putting close-ups of farm animals? There's not a lot of, well, there's some animals, but the trains are under like underappreciated as a theme in Miyazaki movies. There's a surprising amount of trains. There are a
1: lot of trains yeah. that that seem to strain and move and breathe in ways that actual trains are unable to do, and that's in a very movie, yes, very Miyazaki yes. thing.
3: How about a general anti-war sentiment? Any of that in this? I don't know. Is there? Uh, it's yeah, kind of, but not as much as you might think. No, yeah. yeah, I have some issues with
1: that. Actually, <laughs> it's the it's the People, people, I am a pacifist, and although I'm glorifying the uh, person who designed the Japanese Zero, uh, I'm
3: a, did I mention I'm a pacifist? Right, but it's okay, because the guy that designed the Japanese Zero felt really bad about it.
0: <laughs> he, was a, he was an artist. Uh, well, that's, uh, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but... I, we are, we
1: are, we are. John, do you have a more, or was that your opening statement?
0: No, that's it, that's it, but I feel like it is, uh, well, actually, uh, uh, we should go through this the plot uh what there is of it yeah <laughs> but i think the other part of the the preface is that if you if you look at this movie and don't read all the wikipedia pages and do all this research on it seems like it's you know based on the life of this person who made the japanese zero and it's a it seems like a fairly straightforward story that has a strange beginning and end point but if you if you look it up it's like the person who made the zero this didn't happen to them. No. Their life yeah. wasn't like this at all. So you can't look at it and say, "Here, here's a like I'm doing historical fiction or a, like a, a fictionalized version of a historical figure. It is like all Miyazaki stuff, a complete mishmash of two seemingly unrelated things, which makes it, I feel like, invalid to even look at it and say how it is or isn't critical of historical events because this has nothing to do with historical events this is not this has nothing to do with the guy who made the zero except that there's a guy in the movie who makes a zero but his whole story is not that guy's story well it's even it's even weirder than that
3: because it's 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 sort of it's, it's ostensibly the story of the guy who made the zero and may or may not have elements of his actual life story in it but what's it's grafted on with somebody else's real life story uh-huh. about his wife dying of tuberculosis yes. which is just such a strange thing to do.
0: And that, I feel like, is the, is the main the main story. Anyway, But it, well, all I have to say is uh, I think the first time I saw this, I'm like, I guess this is what the guy who made Zero his life was like. And then I looked at him like, no, this is not what his life no. was like at all. <laughs> it,
1: is, it is loosely based on a book, a novel called The Wind Has Risen, which is itself a fictionalized story about people... In a a sanatorium where there
3: is somebody dying of tuberculosis, yeah, it's fictionalized, but very much based on the life of the person who wrote it, who actually joined his wife as she died of tuberculosis in a sanatorium. Exactly,
1: he was not the designer of the Zero. (laughs) He didn't. There was no airplanes at all. (laughs) Uh, But the that so those two things just kind of got mashed together, and we get the wind rises, which is a uh, it is the story about the life of Jiro uh, Horikoshi who. When we first meet him, is a young kid. He grows up to be an aircraft designer, and um, they, we will we will tell his story as we as we talk about the plot a little bit. Um, and but again, just to be clear, it's the story of the kid in the movie, not the story of what actually happened. Yes,
0: he he happens to share the name with the guy who made the zero.
1: Hayao Miyazaki is the original unreliable narrator. He really <laughs> yes. is. You don't believe a thing that guy says. <laughs> um, so so young Jiro. Um, you know, we, he, we, we see there are a lot of dreams in this so it starts out with one of his dreams and he climbs onto a roof and there's something that looks kind of like a weather vane but it also like an airplane and it takes off and he flies around and then there are big threatening airships above him and and there are bombs and stuff like that it's very foreboding
3: and perhaps suggestive they of drop it. pulsating shark bombs with people on them yeah and
1: they and they make a mumbly sound too it's yeah so that the sound design of this movie
0: it starts from this very first scene involves human voices for seemingly everything like affected human voices human voices that have been gone through processing and effects or whatever. But everything, if you listen to it is some kind of human voice. The bombs have a human voice. The train has a human voice. The wind has a human voice. Airplane engines. It's like the infrared engine is like they had someone in a room that said, make a noise like an airplane engine. He went, and then they just, and they just sent that through a bunch of filters. And those are the sound effects. And I find it actually very affecting. I like it's, it's close enough to a regular sound effect that you might not notice, but if you watch the movie a couple of times, all you can hear is just sort of the... It's like, you know, sort of choral singing or like monks chanting or those type of things they layer into big Hollywood movies because the human voice is so affecting. I found it very effective in this movie in being slightly creepy and off-putting in a movie that is otherwise, aside from the dream sequences, very straightforward and non-magical.
1: Yeah, the the, the dream sequences, though, are... It's interesting. I, I feel like the, that's Miyazaki saying, come on, I need to have some fantastical things in my movie, like, right? He doesn't
0: have to ask anybody. He just do what he wants. He has he these
1: wacky, uh, wacky dream sequences. So,
0: so that, that is, you know, the visions of, of, of flight, that happen in these dreams in the grand scheme of things though if you think of all the things that have been not in dream sequences in miyazaki movies that are weirder than the dream sequences oh, in no. this movie I mean, obviously the dream sequences movies are magical but still they are very much grounded as compared to the actual everyday world of so many other movies so it's it's very restrained in that way the, the, the movie the dreams are dreamlike uh but you feel like from the person who made you know, how's moving castle and then spirited away and Ponyo for crying out loud that it's really, it's just,
3: it's all about the planes. Let's be honest. Is that weird? Is the weird, the weirdest noise noise in the film is the one that happens in the middle of the earthquake with, I guess it presages fire that's happening. But it—it's not any noise that I've ever heard associated with any disaster ever. Is that also a human voice? I'm just curious.
1: No, it sounds like it sounds like a Totoro is about to jump. Is what it's it like sounds like. I mean that, that whole sequence.
0: I, that I guess that is the most dreamlike of the non-dream sequences. So it's a a natural disaster. And having never experienced any of the natural disasters depicted, I don't know if there's some weird associated sound that. Funneled through the the lens of memory And childhood can end up like that But that's kind of how I read it
1: Yeah, it's, it's weird, I noticed that too It's a very strange sound, a groaning noise During the earthquake and fire That happened later on um, all right, so we meet we meet the kid who's dreaming about airships and, and bombs and stuff like that. And it is it is young Jiro um at school. He stops some bullies from beating up a kid. He's got mad bully defeating
3: judo skills. He which really is does. Not what you expect from your young aviation magazine enthusiast. No, he's flipping people and stuff like that, and stop at the bullies. And the bullies talk a good game,
1: but he can defuse that situation and then go home and read his uh, English language, tr- where he's got a dictionary to translate magazine about aviation. And of course, when uh, he is on on the roof looking up at the stars, um, trying to improve his vision so he can become a pilot because he wears thick glasses. Um, his sister joins him, and she can see all the shooting stars that are going off above their heads, and he can't see any of that, but. He sees airplanes because, again, he's always going to be having dreams and visions about airplanes. It's who he is. It's it is who he is. And uh, I think that's a there's a good way to get across like the one of the truths about Jiro, which is that although he dreams about flying, he can't. He has bad vision, so he's not going to be an aviator, and he knows that pretty early on, uh, but he can make airplanes happen. And in this this second dream, I guess it is now, uh, where he sees the airplanes, we also meet a a recurring character in this movie, which is uh, Caproni, Count Caproni, the Italian... Airplane designer uh, who has a lovely mustache and is uh, in the in the English dub is uh, Stanley Tucci and he's like, hey Japanese boy, it's great to make it an airplane.
0: <laughs> oh, no. this movie has Sad. is uh, like you know we talk we watch see these movies and I guess if you watch enough of them you kind of get uh, disconnected from the fact that ostensibly the main character in all of them are supposed to be Japanese. Uh, because they're not drawn as stereotypically Japanese, they just look like people, right? But and then in this movie, you get to see uh, a Japanese eye view of what people from Europe look like, and <laughs> they're all monsters. <laughs> like yeah. later, the German guy has just this massive nose and yeah. these gargantuan facial features, and the Italian guy is might as well be asking you if you want a spicy meatball.
3: Right? Mm-hmm. Like just, his mustache is a character unto itself. The way it, it really it is. flows yeah. in the breeze. I mean, the wind rises. The title could just be about what it does to his mustache. I really appreciate these early scenes where we actually see Jiro show some emotion about his uh, his nearsightedness, because he throughout almost the entire movie he is very emotionless, a bit of a cipher. Um, he's, he's very for, stoic
0: in in the yeah. traditional Japanese way. I feel like at,
3: at very key moments he's not, but it's it's I like it. I like these scenes here where he clearly shows some frustration about it and his initial dream ends with him crashing and burning to earth because his, his his glasses, uh, you know, distort his vision in such a way that he can't properly get out of the way of the dropping shark bombs. So I I like these early bits a lot just because, Mm. because of that and because he's more of a character here than he is pretty much in almost the rest of the movie.
0: I think he's, he's plenty of a character. His demeanor certainly changes though. And I think that's part of the sort of very straightforward, uh, documentary style like i'm going to recreate the era uh cultural uh political climate of just expectations of if you're a child this is how you behave and in general he is like a chill person when he's hanging out with his more hot-headed friend later in the movie but the childhood boisterousness transforms we don't get to see his adolescence into the adult person he is who is very reserved and quiet but i think both the voice performance this is the one thing i got out of the dub i can't really tell the emotion that's coming through in the Japanese one a lot of the time because I don't know what he's saying but the voice performance of whoever did the uh, the dub version does a good job of showing that lots of uh, American actors do a tough guy actors where they show emotion while still being stoic like that you can tell like I don't know who does that uh, Tommy Lee Jones maybe uh, if you think of like No Country for Old Men or something like that where they are very kind of stone faced and gravelly and, and quiet and don't say much, but you do feel there's something lurking underneath, and I think the uh, the English actor who did the uh, the person who did the English dub did a good job of that.
1: It's Joseph Gordon Levitt, and I, I agree. I think he does a I think he does a good job in getting across Jiro. Uh, yeah. I think this is a really good dub, by the way. Having watched it, watched both of them, I think it's really good. Uh, yes, there are stars in here, but there are also people giving really good performances. I think George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance is good. I think John Krasinski as his friend is uh, is good. I think Martin mm-hmm. Short is great as Kurokawa,
0: who is a wacky character. Uh, the boss—that's the one who's a little—I thought was a little over the top. I didn't know who it was, but well, I the felt boss like that is a little over the, the top. The boss anyway. character—he looks like a Lego man. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the hair, the flopping hair.
0: When I was watching this movie, I was thinking—you know—you know—we're all thinking about Miyazaki because we so. Uh, intimately familiar with him From watching all of his movies I'm thinking Miyazaki's drawing this right He's come up with all these characters It's is all him uh, When he's doing this Is he picturing himself as Jiro Or as the boss Or as a combination of the two Because I feel like When I saw the boss I'm like this might be How Miyazaki kind of sees himself <laughs> Like yelling at people In the office to do better work mm-hmm. But you know like Like being very demanding, but a soft heart underneath, but also kind of the the, the kid who dreams about
3: airplanes. I think these are like these are fragments of of Miyazaki on on the page. I think perhaps the boss is Miyazaki as he knows himself to be and Jiro is as he aspires to be, Mm -hmm. or hopes to be. (laughs) The soul of Miyazaki. Yeah. I think that's right. I, while we're mentioning the
1: dub, I want to mention one other person who's in the dub and I'll just do it now. There's a German character later on and he has he meets uh, he meets Jiro in the summertime when Jiro is kind of in between assignments and uh, kind of tending to his own wounds and uh, and at one point the German character does does one of these speeches that's like, "Oh, love in the summer is beautiful, but then at the end you go down the mountain and you forget that the love ever happened." And I'm thinking, "This is the wackiest Werner Herzog kind of narration he and is, the answer is german. it is werner herzog oh, as wow. the character i sold. regret not watching the dub now <laughs> it's amazing so uh, like i'm saying not everybody wants to watch the english dub good job english dub people
0: you did a good job there's some great stuff in there yeah, the, 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 one of the good things about this is they have uh, we're talking about the the language when when you watch the uh original japanese the people there are various occasions for people to speak english and german and and for people to speak german inflected japanese right. and other things and it's amazing that even though i have no idea what they're saying because they don't speak japanese you can hear when they're doing a german accent in japanese and you can hear when the when a japanese person is trying to speak german uh, you know the only one we can really appreciate is when you hear a japanese person try to speak english and we can tell that you know it's not exactly that on uh, but it's it's funny like uh, his friend tries to do an impression of the Germans in Japanese and you're like, wow, I didn't know you could do that, but you can totally do a German <laughs> yeah. accent in Japanese.
3: Yeah, it took me a long while in the in the Japanese uh, version to understand that uh, they were saying to each other at various points, the quote from Paul Valerie, I guess it is. In French, yes. Yeah. The wind is rising. We shall we should try to live or we mm-hmm. must try to live. Mm hmm. That uh, was not the best French I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you can imagine
0: what the the Japanese sounds like when they make American actors try to say it in our movies. (laughs) All right, let's pause a moment from talking about airplanes and talk
1: instead about computers and how they will betray you at a moment's notice. That's right. This episode is brought to you by our lovely sponsor, Pingdom. And while you've been listening innocently to this podcast, human with your ears and your headphones or speakers or whatever how would you know if your computers the ones running your website had decided to betray you and break because they do that that's what computers do they break would you know if your customers couldn't click the buy now button couldn't access your content maybe maybe you're idly scrolling through a website while you're listening to a podcast probably not i mean you want to pay attention to this podcast right maybe you weren't though this is why you need a system and this is why you need Pingdom to tell you whether everything is running smoothly or not. The moment something happens on your site, you get an answer. Pingdom lets you know in whatever way you choose, whatever way is best for you, they can get the information to whoever needs it on your team, and they can get you the information that's needed to solve the issue. That could be one person. It could be everybody You get to decide who is in charge of what, what happens when things break. They're dedicated over at Pingdom to making the web faster and more reliable at all times. They use more than 70 different servers all over the world to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. As soon as your computer betrays you, Pingdom will let you know. And while Pingdom also is run on computers, they have 70 different servers. So if one of their servers goes down, not only will they know, but they've got 69 other servers, to uh, pull up uh, the slack I, I, This is how we do it Never let one computer Be your single point of failure Boy, because they will fail you Anyway, all Pingdom needs Is the URL of your website That's it, they take care Of everything else Don't be the last person To know that your site is broken Start monitoring it today Go to pingdom.com snell right now 14-day free trial, no credit card required at all. And then when you sign up, use the code Snell, my last name, at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for their support of The Incomparable. In this dream, I want to mention this dream, too. This is the dream where he meets Count Caproni, who will be coming back with his, you know, spicy meatball, Italian accent and all of that. (laughs) Uh, But I I think this goes to one of the issues I have with this movie and I try to grapple with when I'm thinking about this movie, which is what he says is, oh, there go my airplanes. They'll bomb an enemy city. Most of them will never return. My true dream is air transport. And he shows him like a hundred people can fly in this thing across the Atlantic. Won't it be great? And he says, airplanes are not tools for war. They're not for making money. They're beautiful dreams. And I I think and this keeps coming back, this theme, and I know the movie is trying to address it. I'm not sure it really does, but I think it's trying, which is the idea that these guys who make these planes, they're dreaming of airplanes and they love airplanes. And the only way they can make these airplanes generally is either as tools for war or tools for making money because it's a very expensive thing. But for them, it's all about the dream of flight. And I'm not sure. I mean, Obviously, the movie's trying to grapple with it because it, at several points, directly addresses, like, this, you know, this is going to blow up a lot of people. This is going to drop bombs. Who's it going to drop bombs on? But that keeps coming back in this where uh, where the movie gets us to that point. But I feel like maybe... At that point, the movie just kind of looks over at the designer and goes, "Ah, but what you're going to do? You got to make planes. And uh, then we move on. And we, we, the Caproni's stuff here is the first time we see this same sort of thing, which is we're driven to build airplanes, but we know how they're going to be
3: used. We don't like that, but still we have to make them. You got your military industrial complex in my beautiful dream. <laughs> how dare you use the fighter I designed for fighting? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The, the movie makes its first puts its first stake in the ground and there are there are a bunch of stakes that are put into the ground and we'll try to connect them with some kind of string towards the end but the first stake that's put in the ground on that theme is after jiro comes back from uh defending that boy and and seemingly getting beat up because we saw him do the one judo move but he comes back and his face is all messed up um and he comes and meets his his mother and his mother said oh you got into a scrap or whatever and, and he, he he doesn't explain or whatever and the mom says uh violence is never justified or fighting is never justified. That is the first stake in the ground. It is, it's his mother, so a pivotal figure. It's like her one declarative statement mm-hmm. is that fighting is literally never justified. There is no actually no justification. doesn't matter who's doing what or whatever.
3: Fighting is never justified. Flat. Except it's strongly suggested that she doesn't really believe that because she just called him a hero for showing up with his scuffed yeah. up face.
0: Amazing. So. Maybe, but I feel like that having her declare that in that way and then turn away is like her imparting the motherly like edict, like while I'm proud of you for defending the boy, keep in mind. Fighting is actually never justified, and like it, she doesn't. That's like her her only other line in the entire movie. And I, I feel like that connects to the through line of airplanes are cursed. They're going to go bomb people. Fighting is never <laughs> justified. I love airplanes, so we'll, we'll continue along that path.
1: Now it's now it's a break. We don't have Young Jiro anymore. He's older. um There is a the aforementioned natural disaster. There's a there's a uh, before they're riding on a train. He saves this girl who his hat flies off and. uh
3: and she catches oh, yeah. it
0: uh, about the natural disaster. Is this a real thing? I didn't look this up. but <laughs> yes. this, oh, was yeah. there actually yeah. an earthquake and a fire that burned Tokyo? The
3: Great Earthquake of nineteen uh, twenty something or yeah. other.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I assumed uh, the first time I saw it was, but now I have to question everything. Yes, it's the Great Kanto <laughs> Earthquake
1: of nineteen twenty three. Nineteen twenty three. Uh, but he yeah. meets he meets cute this girl who speaks French and uh, the wind rises and all of that. Uh, the train breaks down. Uh, her the the lady that the girl is with breaks her leg. He carries her. Uh, very he far. Splints,
3: he splints her leg with a with slide, the slide rule, rule, which has yeah. to be a first.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's good with the one-handed slide rule. Some nerd, that's some nerd first aid. He learned that in Japanese Nerd Monthly. Mm-hmm.
3: There's also a nice subtle bit here where um, we we see as the the girl has just rescued his hat and he's sort of helped keep her from falling off the train, although really Kinda. it was the maid that did it. Yeah. Um, she returns to the second class mm-hmm. car, which is this nice, uh, you know, well-appointed two or three people per seat you know
2: as opposed to the sardine can that's the car he was in
3: with the stern-faced uh, old men who don't right. smile
0: at all and he returns to steerage where he's packed in yeah. Yeah. elbow to elbow with everybody
1: else he's only on the back because he gives his seat up to a to a woman and then there's mm-hmm. nowhere
0: else for him to go so he takes a suitcase and goes all the way out and sits on the back of the train I think class is a big, a large factor in this movie. Again, I have no idea how much this reflects reality, but spread throughout the movie and more so in the subtitled version and in the dub, there's, there's a bunch of lines that are taken out of the dub that are in the subtitles, reflecting the idea that Jiro, whatever his beginnings may have been, it's hard for me to tell, I was like middle class in his childhood or whatever, but it's so clear that at a certain point, he and his peers are in both a protected class uh you know plus or minus thought crimes uh and in an elevated class above the whole rest of the country which is poor and backwards and they aspire to sort of the european ideal of that sort of level of civilization but the whole of japan is not like that so they touch on that and confront it and bounce off of it a few times later in the movie but even at this point like the class structure is clear he's on his way up but she is already you know, in second
3: class or whatever. I don't know if there's a first class above that. Oh, she's clearly in a higher class than he is For on the sure. train. sure. I think at this point he's at university. I don't think he's quite been elevated to the protected class. Yet. Right. I think he gets there when he's funded by that sweet, sweet military-industrial mm-hmm, complex money. Mm-hmm. Which again, indeed, you know. Yeah, they, in fact, they make that line about with the the, the pound
1: cake or whatever's layer the sponge cake that's going to come later, which is um, where his friend basically says, "Yeah, you know how much all these planes cost and how much we're giving the Germans for plane development. You could buy a lot of sponge cake with that one, buddy." Right. <laughs> the like,
0: line they removed was that the from that. Discussion from In the subtitle one was that for the cost of one of those fittings, like the little metal fitting, they could feed like uh, an entire village for
1: a
3: every month.
0: hungry kid in Japan.
1: Yeah. 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 And that's that's the idea is that at this point in Japan, this is this is Miyazaki commenting on this era. And this is one of the things that he's trying to do to balance, like telling the story about this artist who is creating this wonderful thing with the era around it, which is people were very poor, but they had they spent all their money on this on the military stuff and on the war stuff. And obviously Miyazaki's feeling is that that's reprehensible and that that's his, that's his criticism of Imperial Japan in the, in the uh, interwar and war era is you had poor people. And instead of feeding them, you built a war machine and look what happened to us that because of that. Um, That's, that's basically what he's saying here. So he saves them. And there's a, one of those, who was that guy? What, what, tell us your name. And he's gone, but, he uh, a goes, cipher. he goes back to school and they they've pulled all the books out because the library's on fire and he finds his, his uh, caproni postcard and this leads to another kind of a little flash of uh of uh it's caproni's dream. Uh, plane, but then we then we see like they're trying to take off, and it basically rips in two and crashes into the into the river. And uh, I think at this point uh, Caproni asks him, "Is the wind still rising?" Because that's what this movie is all about:
3: wind and rising, and yeah, and and checking to see if the wind is still rising. But this this scene highlights, like several others in this movie, who the real heroes that should be highlighted in this are, and that's the nutty test pilots, test pilots. that go out and fly for yeah. yeah. sure. <laughs> Because they all, I mean, they all clearly, at least in the scenes that we see where they crash, they clearly survive because we see the parachute pop out, but you know, they're they're taken off in these rickety wrecks that they dragged out to a field with a couple of cows, yep. and nobody, including the engineers, seems to have any idea whether or not they're going to work. I know, that's what they had to do before computers. How did you tell whether it flied? You get someone in it, you try to
0: fly it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can do all the math you want, but they did not have computers, and uh, they had a the limited understanding of uh, the, the math and mechanics involved. Well, if
3: the mackerel bone tells us anything, it's that this curve <laughs> is certainly going to fly. Yeah, was, the mackerel is known for its beautiful flight. You
1: know, in the final <laughs> Scene where they test the zero, uh, the first zero, and it succeeds. One of the things that that's happens an, that's is not that's, a
0: zero in the final scene. Well,
1: it's the okay. It's the precursor to the zero in the final scene where they where where they finally get a success, and that that leads down to the road to him doing the final zero and all of that. Okay. Little Again, it's just a movie. Uh, it's only slightly based on reality. Anyway, the point is that they finally land something, and the test pilot shakes his hand.
3: It's I like, love yeah. it. It's such a luxury. Good he's, job. He's not, yeah. he's not getting out of a big pile in the middle of a field yeah. trying to pick up his parachute around him. He's actually able to just to walk over and shake the hand <laughs> of the designer. Good job. You didn't kill me. This has never happened it's, before. It's nice.
1: You're right. We do get the mackerel bone. He's fascinated by the curve and the and the fish bone. He comments that that curve is in some American airplane designs, and he says maybe Americans eat mackerel too. Ha ha! Fish bone. Um. Yeah. So he gets he gets his new job. Uh, oh, I, I should mention that his stuff gets returned to him—the the, uh, the the slide rule and all of that. They they have figured out who he is, but he doesn't get to actually see whoever has returned,
3: whether it's the lady or the girl, uh, returned the stuff to him. Um, but he gets it back. Although, how in the world they had ever found him, I have no. I idea. Have I have no idea.
2: Well, the, he mentioned where he was going to school mm. at one point, and so uh, maybe described him. Maybe his name was written on the slide rule. Maybe if, yeah. If, if, if lost, return. Yeah.
3: <laughs> real stoic kind of nerdy guy, glasses, yeah, tousled hair. Yeah. Well, you
0: know, I feel like the the number of people who are going to a university has to be small, given you know the state of the whole rest of the country. Yeah. So actually, yeah, that's a fair point. If he's a university student, you probably find him. Figured, probably even smaller after
3: the earthquake and the fire destroyed mm-hmm. most of the university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Yeah. There was another thing they changed in the dub, by the way. Like, uh, he re- oh, this is a flashback later, but he said he returns to the girl's house to see her. Ah, uh, but her house is gone in a fire and the, and the line in the the subtitle one was that the fire stopped there basically the fire all of tokyo burned and the fire stopped just at her street so i right. destroyed her house but then the other side of the street is fine yeah uh he
1: has another um so he has a, he has his new job now he's working designing planes he has a new boss who as i said earlier looks like a uh looks like a lego character he's like a like from one of those uh lego video games or something it's like a A minifig he's a minifig yeah he's short he's got the (laughs) got the hair anyway and he, he bounces up and down um he has a vision of an airplane falling apart, uh, but they do the, you know, he he they go out to the factory and they look at the strut in the plane, which is a fun scene where the guys are like who work in the factory are on their break. But one of them shows them in and shows them the thing. And they're like, thank you for doing this. He's like, no, it's great. And you really get the sense of like, oh, finally, the designers actually want to see what the heck we do in the factory. And then the, the other workers come back and they're like, hey, what's going on here? And he's like, no, no, it's good. They actually care what we're doing here. And so they look at the strut and have some ideas about it in the factory. And then they run back to the office and they're like giddy. They're like, I love this kind of thing.
3: It's funny, too, because the factory workers gather around at the sight of the engineers looking at the plane. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating to them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what that says. That I, I, I have
1: read that both times I've seen this movie now. I have read that as being one of those things about the danger of being a designer who is too abstract and doesn't think about how their stuff is put to use in the real world, which I guess fits sort of the theme of this. So
0: this begins a series of events that repeat throughout the movie uh, where our hero is asked to do some design job. Which he undertakes and they show scenes of they show, I think, actually well done scenes of basically like nerdy, nerdy work being done, which is very difficult to put in a movie, whether it's computer programming or engineering or something. You have to make it interesting and dynamic and animation is the perfect tool for that. So you see him thinking about the design of this fitting he's been asked to put in. Then he finds out that the fitting is already in the plane, so he's like, oh, maybe my first assignment is like, we're not going to use your work. We just want to see how you do. But he, he finds a flaw in both the fitting he designed and the one that's already in the plane. And he corrects for that flaw and shows his design and some other stuff that he's done. And it's all kind of set to exciting music where you see our precocious, uh, designer being skilled and using his smarts and his math or whatever. Uh, but then when they fly the plane, it breaks into a million pieces. (laughs) So all of his, all of his work and the dramatic music and about doing things, hits up against the reality that a he's actually not that experienced and b the state of the art of airplane design in Japan is behind everybody else yeah. they don't yeah. actually know what they're doing that much he's smart enough to he's he may be the best aircraft designer in Japan but still like when they have a failure he he knows that it's not the fitting and he knows that it's not this you know this particular wing or strut but as a system the entire plane as a system it's clear they are part they are performance characteristics of how the entire plane responds to being flown that they have no understanding of same thing with the engine design which we don't get into but clearly they're they're not up on the engine design either there are several lines in this movie that where it's like oh it's the japanese engine is
1: a disaster and that they blow up and the oil gets all over them and as a kid who grew up in the 70s and 80s i find it very funny to have a movie where everybody's like mm-hmm. oh the japanese are terrible at
0: building engines that, that's what my <laughs> grandfather my grandfather used to tell me how everything <laughs> built in japan is junk because that yep. was the, the pre-war and during the war of Japan is they didn't know what they were doing. They were behind everybody else and they would try to make things but didn't actually understand how to make them. So their engines are weak, which means their planes can't be heavy and they don't have to know how to yep. make them anyway. And when they do make them, as smart as the people are on the sort of the, the micro level and the level of the strut and the wing or whatever, as an entire plane, like the loads under which it has to, you know, the way they just fall apart. So here is our hero, our great designer, the genius. He continues to be called a genius The first thing that
3: he does is makes a plane that falls apart. Well, he's not responsible for that whole plane. He just worked on the fitting. And in fact, what his boss turns to him and says, do you think it's the fitting? And he says, no, I think it's much more complex than that. Like the whole system is messed up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and he says I'll never forget
1: today, and we'll do it better. And he's like, "Well, you can't because we, uh, we we lost the contract, and that's it. And we're gonna we're gonna have to go uh, work with the Germans instead." But I think you're right. I think this is another example of um, reality outstripping the vision of the designer that's going on here too. Because the idea here is that the industry in Japan lets him down. That he's got these beautiful flying visions. And the the reality is that Japanese infrastructure isn't able to fulfill his vision, and this is hit home when they go to Germany later and they talk about these like all metal planes and all these amazing things they can do. And at one point, I think it's his friend who says, "Oh well, we can take this back and then you know do a version with wood and stuff." And the, and he's like, "Canvas, no. wooden canvas." Yeah, he's like, "No, <laughs> no,
0: no. We, <laughs> we can throw a blanket over mm, a frame." Sure. No. It was actually, it was actually, I think Juro who suggested oh, yeah? we could do the same with a wooden canvas. Or whatever but yeah like, it's just it, so sad I, I think you know obviously they're they're both of them all the engineers are complaining about how backwards japan is and then looking up to germany and, and the other countries that are ahead of them uh but also i feel like for Jiro's first project he actually doesn't know that much about making planes like he's fresh out of school he makes one part he ex- exposes genius but he doesn't know what made that plane fail either Uh, so if you had told him oh just let Jiro do whatever he wants and if you put him in a German factory he still probably wouldn't have made a plane that can fly correctly because he doesn't he doesn't understand it yet he's still a rookie yeah uh, we get our sponge cake scene next. He goes home and buys two pieces of
1: sponge cake, and then there are some kids who look like they're uh, they're hungry, and he gives them the kids, but they, they're very, very tempted, but they run away before they uh, can take the, the sponge cake. And this is, leads to that line about, you know, this is a very poor country that pays us a lot of money to design warplanes, uh, his friend says, embrace the irony of it. And then they're off to Germany where there are Road trip. giant planes flying overhead, very much like the planes he saw in his dream at the beginning of the movie. And he comments there's no oxen uh, towing planes out to the test flight facility. Everything's big. Um, and they see a giant plane that is a was built as a passenger plane, I guess, by the great Dr. Junkers. But um, they're going to put bombs in it instead, instead which they say is a... Uh, is a great shame. And then they're driven to look at a small plane that's off on the side and are harassed by the various German uh, soldiers who are like, no, no, that's classified. You can't look there. And there's this back and forth of like, no, we were invited here to learn, learn all we can about this stuff. And they're like, well, I, I need to not leave you unattended. And, and this is the, this is one of these interesting moments where uh, Miyazaki goes here, which is, uh let's remind everybody that uh Japanese people were the allies of the Nazi regime. Here we are.
2: <laughs> and it's it's so subtle. All of all of that is so subtle. So we have this contrast in the movie. Like it's it's driven home several times that this is uh, he was a kind considerate child fighting for what was right, standing up to bullies. He is the rescuer of, um, of the stranger, uh, strange girl on the train. Um, and, and, you know splints a broken leg and all of this stuff and so over and over again we get this point of like he is he is kind he is good for whatever value good is and then the really it's really really subtle kind of like we have to kind of acknowledge that that this other horrible thing was happening but we're not really going to be super explicit about it and um yeah it's just it's just a thing and in some ways I like it because it's kind of a like a slice of life of you know what what was it maybe like for somebody in in Japan during World War II just trying to I don't build airplanes or whatever, you know, like it's this, the snapshot of somebody's life. But on the other hand, it's just like, Oh yeah. And by the way, millions of people were dying in this country while he was like looking at this plane. Um, so (laughs) I don't know, like I, I am really conflicted about that.
0: I think they, they, uh, it is a good take on, I think what it would be like to be just on the tip of understanding Like, because you figure, like, the people who are, you know, their houses burned down in the earthquake or whatever, they have very little understanding of exactly what's going on in Germany, exactly how bad Imperial Japan is, because they're just, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to live and where they're going to get food, right? But when you're in this elevated class and you're actually interacting with the Germans, you know something's up, right? Even if you're just the airplane person, so that's why they have them there, like, when the the person is running from the Gestapo or whatever who runs past them and they chase them and they show the shadows, like... Not only do they know that these planes are going to be used in war and war is bad, but also these guys seem a little bit extra bad.
3: <laughs> well, and I think they also comment during that scene that, uh, oh, that guy was at the factory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these are yeah. people that they're working with directly that are running uh-huh. around.
0: Like the, the secret police. And and even back in Japan
3: where the thought police
0: come after him and mm. who knows why you're never going to know why. Like so I, I, in some ways, if you are in the elevated class and you just head down and you're an engineer and you're working on the thing. You can be blind to the larger picture, but in other ways, you are forced to come in contact with the larger pictures. So you can't pretend that you really don't know because you kind of do. But on the other hand, you're mostly just living your life and happy to not be one of the people whose houses burn down. So I feel like that that uncomfortable balance rings true to me as to what it would be like to be sort of in denial Right. About the larger situation, like comfortable and you want to remain comfortable, but you kind of know more than the other people. And so it's Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable, but you kind of push it aside.
2: Well, and he travels more after that, too. It's not like he just gets this, I don't know, a week or two weeks or three weeks in Germany. He goes on this mysterious trip further west for however far west is,
1: which we never see,
2: which (laughs) we never see. Right. Yeah. So we don't we don't know what he sees, but surely it's like, it's gotta be more than is. I mean, it's just glossed yeah, it's like over. It's like
0: before, like, especially before America comes into the war, like before, like you can, this sort of this, this sort of gentlemanly agreement. that will all be like, uh, civil with each other. Cause we're all just gentlemen, right. Before, you know, America enters the war before any of that happens. And that's sort of, again you, you get the feeling that he's gliding through these experiences kind of like that. Uh, two differences between the 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 dub or one, one specific one. Like when they're in the hangar, that conversation where they get confronted by the small plane. In the dub, it's more of like, oh, come on, we're supposed to see the plane. We're allowed to be here, blah, blah, blah. In the subtitled version, he's much more assertive. He's much more assertive. He becomes like stiff upper lip. Japanese sternness is saying... We We signed an agreement.
2: Yeah, we signed an agreement. We're allowed to see this. Yeah.
0: We're we're like very, he he asserts his authority trying to be an equal to Germany because his, you know, the one thing he's there trying to represent is in his heart, he believes Japan is the backwards country where everyone is poor and we're making war machines and we pull them out with oxen and we don't know what we're doing, but he wants to front like they're not. Uh, And the the other part of this sequence you mentioned is Trip West is like a, a fantasy sequence for modern Americans where you work for a company. Uh, no' been you know part of the military industrial complex that cares so much and has such a long view that it takes you this fresh out of school person and it knows it's going to invest in decades of you. So it's like you are our genius, we believe in you. We'll give you these assignments where you will be asked to excel. When the plane you make crashes, we won't fire you. We'll send you to Germany and because you are our genius, we want you to see more of the world so we'll keep sending you west. Because we are investing in you on a a multi-decade basis. Like kind of the old world of like, not only do you give your life to the company, but the company, the company invests and believes in you, which is just a ridiculous fantasy that doesn't happen anymore, seemingly, where like they'll allow you to uh, grow and fail and they'll continue investing money in you because they feel like there will be a payoff in the end, like you'll make the zero eventually, which sort of sort of gives you know and again he's not appreciative of it really like he understands that he has sponge cake and other people don't but he's just he eventually becomes accustomed to this life and i feel like that's part of what allows him to glide along with discomfort and not sort of the agonizing realization of what he's really doing
3: well if he's got a chief character trait it 's that he 's pretty much oblivious to everything going on around him besides airplane design <laughs> yeah. and, and I, I actually did watch the uh, the the subtitled uh, with the Japanese audio, and that scene in the hangar that you mentioned that to me is a very tense scene because yes. he 's getting a bit officious with the with the Gestapo effectively mm-hmm. and i don 't think he has any idea what he 's doing in that scene or who he 's potentially pissing off. You know, and and uh, that's just kind of that's just kind of the Jiro character. I mean, the same
0: reason he doesn't understand why the thought police will be after him like he he, he's aware, but he's not aware of the full extent. And he's mostly just asserting like because he wants Japan to be seen as an equal to Germany. He knows they're not, but he's going to he's going to he's going to take out his backbone for a second and be like, we are here as equals. But just nobody believes just trying to interpret it since i don't speak japanese
1: but just trying to interpret the difference because it's definitely there in the subtitled version it is the impression i got watching the movie with the subs is the japanese get sent to germany and the germans treat them badly because they're backward and Mm -hmm. germany's got it all going on and the japanese are like hey wait a second you called us here we're supposed to be working with you, and it's and it's very much like an outrageous like we got ideas too. Why are you putting us through this like and it's very much to use a star wars reference this deal is getting worse all the time. <laughs> we paid for access to this technology in basically. the sub version it's more like. Oh boy, these Nazis are bad, or these Germans are bad and they're they're dangerous and uh, and they and they're they're causing trouble and they they take back their promises and stuff like that. It's a very it, it's much more about the adversarial relationship with a a group of people who are unpleasant to be with. whereas in the in the subs, it's more like I thought we had a deal,
0: uh, which is just it's a it's a different take and in the subs he he makes a and he draws a boundary he says we will not accept this kind of treatment or something similar like that like which is much more uh, yeah. asserting your your autonomy and you know they're
1: a little more bumbling in the in the dub than they are in the mm-hmm. subs where it's like why are we even here if you're not going to show us, things. and then
0: the friendly engineer Doctor Junger from from the distance the other side of the hangar like waves and more or less lets them go on, but doesn't come over and say hi or anything because it's just the Japanese coming to look at our planes and aren't they cute or whatever. And then yeah. we learn
3: that he also is. Oh, just let them look. Come on, what are they going to do? It's just <laughs> Japanese. Apparently, he much like our our hero engineers is
0: also not fully up on exactly what it means to be where he is. Totally he find out. Find out he's he's in trouble too because he didn't realize maybe don't. Say bad things about Hitler at this particular, and
3: then yeah. Uh-huh. yeah well, engineers typically live in bubbles. No, this <laughs> is it's fairly it's fairly that, that tracks very well with my experience with engineers, and Jiro in particular. He lives in a super thick double walled bubble. Yeah, and and definitely the the theme of
1: this movie really is that these are people who are very focused on the thing that they love, and they're not necessarily concerned about the consequences because they know. Or even if they're concerned, they're so obsessed. Well, he, he's con-
0: definitely concerned. He keeps it keeps haunting his dreams. He has dreams, he, right? But but he's so obsessed with doing it. Yeah, he doesn't take action on it. He continues to pursue his dream. Like yes. it, it, well, the best example is in the
1: the scene that we are at right now, actually, which is he has another Caproni dream. Hey, Japanese boy, you are back. <laughs> and, I used to have those Caproni dreams. And, <laughs> and let me tell you, well, Jiro had didn't. a lot of them. Uh, they're on the train. He says, the wind's still rising. Um, but And he's like, I got this big plane. It's too big to even be used for fighting, but the Air Force likes big planes. So, haha, they paid to build this thing. Uh, he... Uh, at one point cautions in in a very weird moment that I love, uh he cautions Jiro about getting too close to a propeller because he said, Be careful, this may be a dream, but you can still lose your head. Yeah. Which like that's great. And he says, and this is what Caproni in the Dream says to Jiro, which is my aircraft are destined to become tools for slaughter and destruction. But I still choose a world with pyramids is the metaphor that he uses, mm-hmm. with 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 grand objects that were created with horrible ways of creating them but they are grand and they remain and i choose uh i choose to live in a world with these wonderful things that were created even if they were created by horrible means and that's caproni's choice and you know he's basically saying to Jiro, this is going to be your choice too that in order to have your dream be fulfilled you're going to have to create things that have terrible destructive power
0: well and the thing about the caproni dreams is this movie being fairly straightforward in what's real and what's not Caproni's not actually there, even though they're like sharing the dream or whatever. This is all just Jiro talking yes. to himself. He's never met Caproni. We yes. have no idea what Caproni actually thought or whatever, right? So, this is all these dreams are it, his concerns about the things that he's making being voiced and eventually like being rationalized by this alter ego. Uh, reassuring mm-hmm. him about things and telling him, by the way, that in Italy, we're poor too, so many mouths to feed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, just throwing some more. I, there were no pizza pies came flying out of the plane. Uh,
1: I
3: have to cut my spicy meatball into five <laughs> pieces. <laughs> There's barely enough mustache to go around for all of my 40 children.
2: I kind of kept waiting for this to be like the magical thing that happens, like somehow they meet and they find out that they're just they're actually sharing a dream or something, because that's what I'm used to with Miyazaki is like John was talking about at the beginning of the show that that never happened. I was was sitting here like, well, maybe maybe they actually are in the same dreamscape and and something's going to happen and it's going to be. But no.
3: I feel like they are. I, I The whole time when those, those sequences were happening, I was thinking that exact thing. They probably really are sharing a dream because they're in the exalted space of aeronautical engineers. <laughs> so it's not entirely out of out of the realm of, of possibility that they might just meet up in dreams from time to time with their heroes. As you do. It,
1: it could happen. It could happen. All right. Um, they're going to build uh, a carrier based fighter, uh, Jiro's company is going to build on it. Uh, he's been there for five years now. He's their lead designer. He's going to be the lead designer on this aircraft carrier based fighter. And, uh, we do another set of him, uh, doing a bunch of work there's a test landing the engine explodes those stupid japanese engines they say they do another test uh first plane goes off the aircraft carrier like yeah the second plane engine explodes plops down in the water um (laughs) you end up with sort of like we succeeded at building this thing and um the the they don't get the contract and uh and then he actually
0: Actually, I think what they were doing in the fair, there was
3: seeing the existing stuff before he goes and builds one. Yeah, so the existing stuff, oh, okay. the existing stuff stinks. Yeah, the the later plane that they take out to the airfield, I think, is their is their entry in the design yeah. competition of nineteen thirty two. Okay, so they,
1: there's this the montage essentially of aircraft yeah. carrier and watching things and the things explode. In the end, they don't get the contract, right? They don't get the deal, and Jiro has to go to this. He goes to the mountain resort to lick his wounds.
3: Well, because and I think this is this is very poorly uh, explained in the film. Mm-hmm. I think that plane does crash and burn as well. It's very artfully explained in the film. I think. Well, so he, it is, he's but given, it, took, he, it took a while to, to pick up on it, at least in the uh, subtitled version. So he's given he's given the assignment to make this
0: plane, which is a good assignment. He undertakes it in a typical, very dutiful, you know, honorable Japanese way. I will do this for you. I am your genius designer. I've been here for five years, and he makes this this plane, which is trying to use all the stuff he learned from Germany. Uh, and then you, you see the plane, you see it take off. And then you see him going to this mountain retreat and only when he's at the mountain retreat, he just lays down on the ground and has a flashback to how did his first project go where he got to be the lead designer on the plane crash and burn.
3: <laughs> That's how it went. <laughs> the first time through, I saw that and I was like, oh, he's having yet another dream about planes crashing around him because he does that all the all time. All the time, it But it no. took me a second viewing to realize, oh, this is, this one's actually a flashback. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like it because it's it shows, again, like the first time his plane crashed, but the second time he'll get it right. Nope, no. nope. And you think it is because he goes to the retreat. You're like, why is he at the retreat? And because he's so kind of stoic and stone-faced and, you know, he's got all these interactions at the the thing or whatever, that that, that plane crashed. And that, and again, the company didn't fire him. They sent him away to a retreat where he needs to recover because they're going to need him to be refreshed okay. later. So he's 0 for 2. Our genius designer has not successfully made... Uh, Has he helped the company? Has he helped them win any contracts? Has he made any planes that fly? No, because still Japan in general is bad
3: at making planes. He's been there for five years. Surely there have been minor successes Mm. in that time. Sure right
0: one. I'm not saying that he's a terrible I'm just saying this is this is sort of the not following the typical journey of your hero right. who is smarter than all the other engineers and he's the one who's going to try to make the plane better and if the first plane crashes it's because the evil engineer doesn't listen to him but he really knows because he's younger <laughs> this is a much more realistic depiction I would say this is
1: a little bit of the hero's journey though this is his low point right this is this is his in the in the story arc of here of uh, Jiro's life he is uh,
3: he's failed and he kind of goes away and licks his wounds for a little while before he comes back Back. As the huge beaked German guy remarks later, when he arrived here, he looked very sad. Mm-hmm.
0: And this, and before we get onto what makes him happier, so here we are. I think it's past the halfway point of a movie that, in my mind, is mostly a love story. We are past the halfway point, and we have not. Be, he has not even met the adult version of his love interest, no, which which he's about
1: to do in a scene. And I want to mention this the, in a. Uh, I find it really charming the way that Steve often describes inexplicable things that happen in a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> (laughs) And I'd like to take a crack at it here because there's a scene in the dining room and this is what happens. A girl sees Jiro alone (laughs) with soup. A man... Eats a potted plant. <laughs> I
3: have that exact same thing in my notes. I have that literal sentence written down in my notes. This is sort of the
0: dehumanizing view of Westerners, like because he doesn't just eat it like a person. He eats it like like a hippo would eat like greens. That he pulls it like yeah. just, like the stuff sticking out of his mouth. He eats it like a forest creature. It's
1: supposed to be salad, but it's a potted plant, and he's got a fork, and he's just <laughs> continues pulling parts of the plant off and eating them. And it's I just I was dying. I was dying with laughter
3: every time because he keeps eating the plant. Well, there's there's your up close and personal there's your up close and personal uh oh. you know um, shot in the face of a ruminant of some kind. It just happens to be a German man this time. Oh. We don't we don't get the goat chewing in your face.
0: Yeah. It might as well be a goat. Oh boy. The strange his strange German eyes. And the way they do it, you look back later and you're like, okay.
1: I know it looked like he was eating a plant there, but I obviously just misinterpreted. Nope. <laughs> nope.
0: They use the, they use the same noises as like in, in Princess Mononoke when the forest spirit like makes trees grow and the little plants the little plants spread out. That's the sound it makes when he's crunching through this this foliage. Well, later what it, he says they have good watercress here, so yeah. I think that's yes. what that's supposed to be.
3: Sure. But it's just a big old it's a big old <laughs> vase full of full of watercress. Yeah, it's
0: just a gigantic bowl, and he's so happy to have it, the biggest smile ever. And he takes them off. Oh and my god. Them yes i have always liked to eat the watercress. it is
1: very <laughs> fine so, says uh, yeah says Werner herzog in the dub uh, version. anyway uh the girl does see jiro alone with his soup by the way that was really important and then later um walking in the forest oh yeah we missed the parasol scene he sees a painting oh yo i i mentioned yes no he sees her by the water and the wind Rises and her parasol goes flying, and he catches it, and has a vision of planes and stuff, and brings the parasol back, and that leads into then she sees him at dinner, and she's already said to her father, "Oh, oh, you know that's the guy from the train, and all of that." And then finally, he goes out in the forest, and he sees a a painting that is there on an easel, and there's a girl by a spring, and he and he surprises her, and uh, but she says, "No, no, no, I was actually uh, praying to the spring to bring you to me." Uh, because uh, I'm the girl from the train, you know, and he goes,
2: oh, oh, yeah, you're that girl. Right. Remember?
3: I remember the girl I was obsessed with for two years and tried to look up and now I've sort of forgotten about. But now I remember again. Well, People change. Yeah. He's playing it cool. It has been three years since that. Plus, he
0: only saw like he saw her from he saw he didn't go to see her up on the hill. And the parasol flew. She's still up on the hill. So you can't see who that is. And then across the dining room, she's a little bit closer. So I give him, I give him a, a pass for not recognizing her, because he's when, yes. and she was younger than him, seemingly. Like when when they met on the train, he was older and she was like, like nine or something. Also, every time he looks at her across that crowded room, he is distracted by the German
1: man who is eating a plant. Yeah, <laughs> and how
3: could you not be?
0: <laughs> he's trying to get a good luck with this munching hippo was a like, crunch, yeah. crunch, <laughs> crunch. The
3: watercress is so tasty;
1: I just cannot <laughs> stop my doctor my doctor told me to eat more
3: green leaves
0: and i am doing it yeah that parasol scene is the one they use for the cover of the dvd and it is a beautiful yeah. very iconic sure. scene of her painting no,
3: no, it's the later one where he, he comes up and kisses her but it's very similar yep. yeah
0: yeah they, they, they're she's on that hill a lot but it's very very scenic miyazaki beautiful sort of vision statement for the movie is uh you know the, the love story and the love interest the fluffy clouds the green hill very kiki-esque the, yes the painting the flowing dress the parasol it's all very uh idealized, but still grounded in reality, everything is a real thing um you know even more something like Ursula in uh and what do you call it and Kiki I feel like this is more still still more grounded than her and her magic shed. This is a good time to point out that once again uh nobody does
1: you know expressing the love of the Japanese countryside and of the sky and clouds and things like miyazaki does and this movie like all of his others is really beautiful in that way where he, he sweats a lot of the details there's a shot where jiro is walking on a hillside and he's walking up the hill but you can't see the bottom of the hill and it's one of these like weird perspective shots and i just i i, I watched it and i thought why even do that shot And it's because Miyazaki was like, I want to do that shot. Like, I want it to look like this. I want it to be him walking up a hill that you can't see. And, you know, there's so many things like that where it's just it doesn't it does not need to look this beautiful. It does not need to be this detailed. But this is like this is what he lives for is this stuff. It's great.
0: Yeah. And it's a beautiful place for them to, you know, form their relationship and for you to understand, again, a love story with very little dialogue mm-hmm. of, of, of Jiro, who is very sort of stoic and doesn't say much. And she's being demure and kind of shy. And their their rom- romance is not one where they spend hours and hours talking. You get the impression, right? It's more of a, I mean, they, they did meet before, so they know each other's character and he's very respectful and they're sort of, they're sort of play acting the roles they're expected in the class that they're in. Like this is what courtship would look like in that, in those classes, but you do still feel a genuine affection and the, the sort of the goofiness with the paper airplanes and all that. So I think it works. Although I feel like this worksmanship on the corner of the balcony at that hotel is suspect. Yeah. yeah. What kind of like, what is that dry rot? Like he's on the corner of a wooden thing and it just disintegrates.
3: Like, even the luxury resorts are not in the greatest shape in Japan at this point. Yeah, it must be made of balsa. Th- this is the double <laughs> reference back to that scene on the train, too, right? Because it's like
1: he's trying to reach the plane, but then mm-hmm. he's in danger. And then later, later she tries to reach the plane, and her hat falls off, and she's in danger, and he catches her hat. Like, the- it's like the meek, cute gods keep overdoing it with the meat cute with the two of them it's like you get it you get it
0: yet you get well, it now so the animation this is part of it, the 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 beauty and the danger of animation is that in all those scenes like they, she almost falls off that plane. She almost falls off that balcony. Like yeah. it's so, he he almost falls off the ledge. That he's re- because in animation you want to exaggerate it for. But like if you think about it, it's like if I saw someone doing that, I'd be like, you're being too reckless. You could die. <laughs> you know, like don't don't actually fall off the train to catch your hat. You
2: need to pay more attention.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it works. It works in the moment. I think it is the 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 farthest this movie goes with fanciful animation, second only to the uh, the earthquake effects.
3: Uh, because she honestly, she should not be that far over the railing. <laughs> she could die. <laughs> there's, there's a real theme, I think, that that runs through this entire movie of living like on the edge of something. Yeah. Like they're they're constantly hanging out over the edge of balconies or off of trains. Um, the, the house is like the last house burnt. It's right on the edge of the fire at the end of the earthquake. Um, there's a scene here in the resort where the rainstorm that they're in, they find the edge of that. And and, uh, right. and Naoko comments on it. It's like, oh, the rain stopped right here. And he's constantly living his life like on the edge of the big breakthrough where he finally gets a plane to work properly. So I I'm not sure what the point of that theme is, yeah. but it's definitely there yeah because she because she lives at the edge of the fire and and there's the edge
1: of the water
0: and yeah i I feel like it's part of the maybe i'm reading too much into the restraint but i feel like what's expected of people in that society is they're not going to have a torrid love affair or just be gallivanting and, and being drunk all night or whatever that there is certain expectations of mostly imported european mannerisms in uh in this class of japan at the time where you know, you you are expected to have a courtship. You're not expected to live together until you're married. All sorts of rules that probably, you know, wouldn't apply to. I don't know. Actually, I don't know what the traditional plan is, but, the, but it clearly is very similar to sort of the Western courtship rituals of the time that we're familiar with. And it's restraining. Uh, they they just want to live together and be happy. Uh, but they're separated by the sort of quarantining of the illness and the propriety of of. uh Politeness and the fact that he's got to go back to work and she's got to go back to where she is. And so these moments that they can steal together being being ridiculously dangerous or, or silly or goofy or sort of... It's almost like they're doing something in secret when they're just throwing airplanes because they're not allowed to see each other because she has to stay up there by herself. Right. That this is the only sort of freedom and fun they could have. And later in their relationship, I feel like they're, it's both of them going through the motions of what's expected of them and eventually she rebels and says, you know what, no... I'm going to live the the few days that I have left in some with some semblance of autonomy and say we're going to be together uh, and we'll do what we have to do to make it not scandalous. But it's it's dumb to continue to be this restrained. Right. So I don't know if that that ties into the edge theme, but I feel like that's that infuses all their scenes Mm. together and then you leave the mountain and you'll never you forget yeah, like, not gonna, not not gonna happen to me yeah so another this so this german dude <laughs> the other big important speech he has is he he's the one who comes in with another stake in the ground he is an offhanded thing while they're chain smoking like everybody in this yes, movie does the,
1: the nazis are hoodlums junkers is in trouble he doesn't like hitler he's making very bad statements
0: but he also talks about things like, oh, you do this, you do that. He goes through all the stuff that Japan yep. did. Like, you start you, you start a war in China, you install a puppet state, right. you leave the League of Nations. It's like, letting off, you know, just so you know, just reminding everybody, this is what Japan was doing at this time. He knows it. And apparently, you know, uh, Jiro doesn't comment on it, so he knows it too. But it's like, Japan's not it's, it's not a great actor here either. Uh-huh. And it's like, what do you think is going to happen as they clumsily say several times that you know Germany is going to blow up Japan is going to blow up more literally than Germany actually yeah uh, although surprisingly they don't touch on that is like the only Japanese movie that only barely hints at nuclear bombs being dropped and it's the one that leads right up to them uh, because they do have a big kind of mushroomy cloud at the end
1: yeah and the and the and the field of destroyed airplanes and uh, mm-hmm. I feel like it's the, dream it's the apocalyptic yeah. yeah
0: moment yeah. yeah so he he is our sort of soothsayer or you know who says this is what's going on just to remind just yep. to remind you the audience and just to remind you ujiro in an offhanded way while i smoke your cruddy japanese tobacco <laughs> right uh, that that japan is uh kind of evil and has done some terrible things and is headed for a fall yep just
1: like germany is like i mean that's his point is and that's why he's being searched for by the secret police as it turns mm-hmm. out our little german friend <laughs> they'll never catch him he
0: can live on watercress alone but they, that's right he'll just
1: be out there in the fields <laughs> just out yep, there ruminating eating
0: plants mm-hmm.
1: but uh but so anyway uh naoko the girl although she's got tuberculosis uh the wind brought him to her uh and they will get married when she's better i want to mention at this point that i don't understand
0: movie tuberculosis i looked it up because i didn't understand it either but it actually does make sense this is this is this uh depiction of tuberculosis is true to the actual disease in that you can have it and it can come and go, but they because they didn't have actual treatment for it, which I think is antibiotics or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. you would just live with it until it eventually killed you. But this type of thing where you would go to the sanatorium because they have like, oh, you need to have fresh mountain air and you could be fine for a little while, but then it would come back. But then you'd have a hemorrhage. All does track with how tuberculosis worked, given the treatments that they the quote unquote treatments that they had. Uh, back then and miyazaki you know uses
1: this in multiple movies as the you know this person is sick but they're but they can look fine, but they're but they're sick, and then they, then they have a moment where they're really sick, and they have to go to the hospital,
0: and then they come back. Uh, well, and, you know, his, Miyazaki's actual mother, guess what, had a chronic illness. Didn't, uh, she didn't actually die from it, but, like, she, she was ill. I don't know if it was tuberculosis, but it was similar. Much of his childhood, she was ill and kept away from him, but then would come back and then go away again. So, surprise, you'll see that in a lot of his movies. Yeah,
3: and The problem here is Jiro is so wrapped up in himself and his design that he never leaves her an ear of corn. It's true. <laughs> Would have fixed everything. Could have mm-hmm.
0: solved it. Also, well, that's, you know, so they, I, I forget what what happens after they depart. Where does she go? Does she go to, she doesn't go to the immediately.
1: No, I think she does. No. And
0: he goes back no, to she the, goes No, she goes back to her house because he goes and visits her in the house. But the whole, the whole deal is like, he's got to go back to work. She goes back to her rich parents' until house. Until she gets better.
3: Quote unquote. Right. Yes. To, to
0: try to get better so they can get married usually because they've already decided they're going to get married. And. Uh, he hears that she has the hemorrhage and, you know, he has a sort of flash of what it must have been like for her to have it. And he's got to Which go. Which we get to see in great detail. Yeah. I, th- I mean, that, that has to be in the movies. The sort of silent, you know, I mean, Spirited Away had that same scene with the, the blood vomiting uh, dragon. So it's not a Miyazaki movie if someone doesn't vomit blood. Uh,
2: he, <laughs> he decides, that his Yeah,
0: he He decides he has to go see her immediately. But he doesn't drop everything and go run to see her immediately. What he does is he runs back into his room, gets his briefcase, shoves all his papers into it, finds out the fastest way to get to her, hops on the train and on the train, he's continuing to work because he knows he can't actually not do the work. He needs to be a dutiful, you know, engineer and do the work, but he also needs to see her. So he combines them. He does the work during transit, gets to her, sees her for five minutes. They're together. And then it's like, well, I have to go because of course I have to go back and do the work. Yeah. Uh, And then leaves. And then she says, you know what, Uh, F this, I'm going to go to the sanatorium because I want to do everything I possibly can to get better, even though it's lonely in the sanatorium and you got to be in your little cocoon out in the cold. That, according to modern medicine, is my best chance to get better. And I want to get better. But like his his commitment to his work is very sort of stereotypical. You know, we know of a stereotypical 80s Japanese culture of dedicating yourself to your job. And it is like your number one priority above your family. And Jiro is showing heroism and romanticism by even leaving his desk, even though, yes, of course, he continues to do the work. Look what a romantic he is. He actually goes to her. If he went to her and actually dropped his job, he wouldn't be a romantic. He would be,
3: you know shirking his
2: duties. And also maybe dead. Yeah, that's
0: that too.
3: Yeah, that's true. At this point, the the only reason that he's not being uh, picked up and carried off by the special police, quote unquote, is that the company is protecting him because he's still useful to them. Uh, Yeah,
0: that. so in the subtitle version, that is a difference. In the dub, they're like, oh, you know, we'll protect you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I think they joke like, just keep making those planes, ha, ha, ha. In the dub or in the subtitle version, the head of the company or whatever, the big wig guy above Lego man says... We will continue to protect you as long as you prove useful. Yeah, okay. which is it's a, very, a, a very
3: different take on exactly yeah. what p- situation he's in with his employer. Yeah, the impression I get of this train trip is that at, at this point they've they've started designing for the next big design competition that they that his previous plane failed to pass muster for, mm-hmm. um, and this is the one that eventually is going to culminate in the zero. Uh, but it's the impression I get is that. It, it it's got to be a whirlwind trip no matter what because right when he gets back like the next day he's got the meetings with the the engineers and he's got the meetings with the the army guys that are going to you know give them the requirements or whatever and mainly just bark at him so You know, I I think in that particular reason, that's why he's got to grab all his stuff and and take it with him on the train. Although the sense I get is that he probably would do so anyway, just because that's 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 Jiro. Well, yeah, because
0: like this is this is the prioritization in his life. What does he care about more? Does he care more about designing airplanes? He doesn't really care about the war. He doesn't care about geopolitical stuff. He wished that didn't exist. He wants to make airplanes and he wants to be with her. And those two competing things compete and uh, establish their hierarchy in a way that is decidedly non-romantic from Western perspective. But I feel like from the perspective of the time comes off as more romantic because it is such a departure of what's expected, despite the fact from from our modern sensibilities, you'd be like, why, you know, why are you even still doing this? If you really care about her, why are you, why are you
3: doing your, like, why
0: are you crying into your uh, math on the train to go visit her?
3: Well, yeah. And that's, that's the capper for this scene that actually brings the romance forward for, for non, you know, Japanese uh folk <laughs> is that as he's doing his work that he has to get finished these gigantic tears are pouring down his face and dripping onto his work and onto and he his he just keeps work. writing but he's got to keep on going right <laughs> yeah and he's and he's on the the
0: train where he used to be like outside the cabin you know where uh, you know his papers would actually fly away but anyway he's it's it is all very romantic if seen through the the right lens but that that tension between love and duty uh continues throughout this movie and is and it like settles itself in a way that I feel like is still not in line with modern sensibilities. So it is an ins- interesting for for Miyazaki, who's such a mush and a romantic in, at heart in many of his other movies to be true to, I think, the sensibilities of this time uh, makes me think like this movie is so much more like I'm not going to say realistic. I said adult before restrained, like it's not a, a pure embodiment of. Uh, Miyazaki's emotions it is much more a picture of mostly fictionalized people in this period in time it's more of a period piece I feel like so in this section of the
1: movie um, he does go back to work the secret police are uh, looking for him um, there's that line they never ask why they just take you away and like sometimes you don't come back but they they try to hide him because they're working on this there is the very exciting unboxing of the prototype phalange which <laughs> mm-hmm. extruded
0: aluminum luxury very exciting that they take it out of the box
3: probably like, could have fed
0: three villages with that
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and he has the design seminar where he talks about this amazing plane he what the design seminar he shows basically the design for what will be the zero but he says I can't we can't do this because it be too heavy it would you know it would be the right weight if we just didn't have to do the guns which everyone has a good laugh about yeah. right but yeah and he's know.
1: he's really in his element here they do the thing where it's like uh uh we they, they get the flush like rivets to reduce the drag and he he's got this other thing that he tells his friend about Is like you put that on your plane first and then i'll use it and then he comes back later is like can i use that now and he's like yeah you can use that now um and that's all going on where they're they're working on this great project you know meanwhile uh naoko has a has a uh a lung hemorrhage. Um, she comes to see him. They, there is a scene where they rush to each other through a crowded train station, which is a scene you have seen in live action movies time after time. But I th- what I think is really notable is that this movie goes through the effort of of animating that entire set of crowded train station scenes where they have to animate all these characters moving around and bumping into our characters as they're rushing toward each other and that's the thing that that struck me about it is that although that's a scene i've seen a thousand times before they wanted that scene to be in this movie and they animated it and it goes on for a while where they're pushing past people in order to get to each other and then uh, in the end they uh that he wants her to stay, and they get married to stay together,
0: and there's a whole uh, uh, marriage scene where he gets called a chucklehead. There's the thing about animation before we move on from the yeah. from the train crowd scene. Uh, I think most people know when they see a live-action movie which parts are expensive and which parts aren't, but in animation, it's very counterintuitive. I think like, the most expensive and time-consuming shot in this movie was like an overhead shot after the earthquake of him waking his way through the crowd with the woman on his back. Right. And it looks like it's just a bunch of people and he's walking through them. Who cares? Because there's like 90 people on the screen and you have to animate every single one of those 90 people by hand. It's so much cheaper to have a beautiful painted background with one character on it that looks fancy. This must be the most expensive shot. Look how beautiful it is. No, one guy drew the background and then you drew the animation. It's the scenes with tons of people. And even the train station scene, there are lots of people, but on screen at any one time or maybe seven So I think one of the making of things they showed them doing the overhead earthquake scene, it took them like three months to make like two seconds of footage (laughs) of the people walking because, of course, everyone has to be uh, beautifully animated. So it is definitely counterintuitive. I'm not saying that's the best investment of money, because who even remembers that scene I just referred to the overhead scene of him walking through a crowd and after the earthquake? You just you just pass it off as like well if we did that in live action I just get a bunch of extras they'd walk past each other it would be done, uh, but in animation that's the expensive stuff and also we just glided past one of my favorite parts so this this movie has the highest number of and the best representation representation of snuggle forts. There are many snuggle forts in this movie. And we skipped over the winter snuggle fort, which is you're out there on the deck getting the fresh air and they wrap you in the big burlap snuggle fort. And then you get your letter from your sweetie and you go into your snuggle fort to read it. And then the snow drifts in, right? She's got her, the snuggle fort, her sort of death snuggle fort that she makes where she lays down. And she's got the the, the blankies that she puts over herself. And then she brings her husband into them. She, she invites him in after they're married. Lots of good snuggle forts in this movie.
3: Yeah. I also made a note of that particular scene in the train station where they're you know they they they're trying to find each other and constantly being interfered with by other people on the platform and and uh you know I've seen that scene a million times too and there's something so visceral about the way they animate this scene that it's like you always get the impression when you see this in live action. Oh yeah, that's got to be really irritating bumping into all these people here. It feels like the 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 world is going out of its way to put people in front of him. And they're so desperate to get to each other,
0: like each each they're always going. I mean, the the whole reason they're in the the train station to begin with is she she just decides, you know what, I'm I'm going to go see him. And then he finds out she's on her way cuz like the dad calls or whatever. Like, she shouldn't be leaving. She's on her way. I'm going to go meet her at the train station. And they just like, it's two people who just decide whatever we're doing, the whole mountain, fresh air and me doing my work. It's not working. We want to see each other more than we care about anything else, including our health. So we're going to find each other. And so they end up coming together in train station. So it's it's I think it's it works because it's not the American version is like. Uh, we've been apart and we're fighting over something dumb, but we finally both realize that we love each other, right? That's not this. They have always known the entire time they love each other. They're they've been apart due to trying to do what they think is the right, proper thing for both their health and their class or whatever, and they're in the end, it's just like, no, we just need to be together. And so that's that's the emotional climax of this scene. And yeah, they do feel like they need to get together.
3: Yeah, I mean this this is clearly just symbolic of of the fact that, you know, whatever society or or tuberculosis or, you know, anything that's 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 conspiring to keep them apart is this is just purely I think a visual representation of that. And um there's another crowd scene earlier too during the fire when uh they're racing through the crowd to try to get to Noko's house and there's a scene, there are scenes where like he's holding her by the hand and at various points, like they almost get separated by the rushing crowds and they manage to keep their hands together. And then, you know, he, he pulls her closer and they're able to get through the crowd without being separated. But again, I think that's all just, you know, everything is conspiring to keep these two apart or to tear them apart in some way. And, and uh, you know, it's just a beautiful representation of that, I think.
2: Yeah, I was actually going to bring up kind of the symmetry of those two scenes and how um even though in that first scene they didn't know one another there was still like the struggle and the fight to stay together and to not be separated and it's the same you know granted in a different way when they're trying to find each other at the train station but it's i kind of liked that um reinforcement of the idea that they're not you know, the softy, softy that I am, you know, they're not going to let people stand in their way. They're not going to let, you know, everything else is kind of peripheral um, for them in these moments. And I appreciated that reinforcement.
0: Uh, Honestly, you have to think that during this whole thing, they're, they're both smart people, right? They like, they have to know that despite, you know, the advice that she should get fresh air in the mountains or whatever, it's like, does this treatment actually work? Like,
3: what's the success rate?
0: People go to this thing in the mountain. Do they come back refreshed and they're cured? Does that
3: happen a lot? Well, they probably, they probably, uh, you know, go into remission or whatever, whatever you would call that in tuberculosis.
0: Maybe, but like, and then they sort they're... of
3: associate that with the time in the sanatorium. But like,
0: I think it was understood that like, this is, you never get cured if this is, they didn't have a cure, right? And so the, it's almost like she's doing it because like when she gives in and says, this is what the doctor's telling me I should do. I'm just, even though it seems like a terrible thing to do. And I'll be lonely, and I'll be by myself, and I won't like it. I'm just going to do it, because. But eventually, she's there. I was like, you know what? Like, does are these people all going to leave and be well? Am I going to be cured? Like, how long is? And uh, the beginning, just like, oh, I'm going to stay there until I'm well. But she has to understand nobody gets well from this. Like, you could have good days and bad days, and eventually, it's going to get you because we don't actually have a cure. You've still got it, and so she decides, as she does in various times, to not do that. Just like uh, you feel like. In many sort of these high society things, you're expected to go through the motions of a thing that you know in your heart will not actually have the supposed desired effect. And all you're doing is burning the little time you have left going through the motions of what's expected to you. So she takes off on her own and goes to meet him. And then after that, she cannot be dislodged. She's going to stay in her little pink snuggle fort and hold his hand while he draws things. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I kind of expected the sister to show up, Jiro's um, sister to show up with the cure because there was like the, the antibiotics that can for many people cure tuberculosis were discovered in the thirties. And so it was like, Oh, well maybe she's going to show up miss, you know, intern doctor and, and cure, um, our hero's wife. And I was um a little disappointed
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, this country is backwards as as this movie tells us many times i I do like the fact that she's a doctor i have no idea if that's realistic but in the beginning she's like you know i think i want to be a doctor it's like oh that's cute kid she does end up being a doctor in the movie because it's a miyazaki movie and of course she's going to do it but i i really have no idea were women even allowed to be doctors and he says i'll
1: talk to dad like like (laughs) he's not gonna listen to you but i'll go i'll put a word with you and dad like yeah um, yeah she should be a doctor and she because she, she wasn't allowed
0: to be in in tokyo by herself because that would be scandalous yeah. and dangerous and so on and so forth so he's going to put in a word and so she you know we don't see her story but she comes back guess what she's a doctor yeah and she says she says this is bad and uh she's she's
1: she puts on too makeup,
0: and yeah, she's putting on rouge, so she doesn't look like death. You
1: don't understand. This is this is not movie tuberculosis. It's the <laughs> real thing. And uh then you know, and there is that tender scene where he is he's home and holding her hand and using his slide rule with the other hand as he as he sits there and he's finishing and up his designs <laughs> and smoking. Yeah, that that's a that's a really touching moment, right? Where he's like, no, it's really bad for. Her. She's like, ah, I don't care. I'm don't gonna care. die anyway.
2: So, as a person who has had lung lung issues her entire life, can I just say that was baloney? Because <laughs> when you get in those coughing fits, there's no way, there's no way you're yeah. going to be like, "Yes, please, please smoke a cigarette by me so I can cough no. it in my lung."
3: We really see her coughing much at all? In fact, I'm not sure we ever see it. But we see her
0: coughing up blood. It's a movie tuberculosis. I think what they tra- the, the whole vibe they're trying to give to her is like that she is so weak. Like when her lung hemorrhages, who knows? Like she's she's on she has no lung capacity. She apparently can walk to the train station, but like that at any moment she could keel over because yeah. she can, does not have enough strength or blood pumping or oxygen being transferred from her lungs to basically live. Like that's what's <laughs> going dramatic. to eventually kill her. It's so very she's dramatic. very fragile. And so that's what she's basically like motionless on the floor for long, long periods of this mm-hmm. movie. So she's going to go back to the sanatorium. Um, and, the, and he has to go test out with the oxen. He has to test his plane. Okay. This plane is done now. His design is done. He, they have the triumph like my design is done mm-hmm. he comes home he collapses and sleeps with her yeah he's gonna go he's gonna go back and see the plane
3: well and it should be noted that her plan to go to the sanatorium was not expressed to anybody else it's a secret plan to get out of Dodge.
0: Right. She No, she, she just says goodbye to him, like, oh, he's going off to work. And she says, oh, yeah, I left the room a mess. Uh, I'm just going to go out or whatever. Yeah, so she won't go in and find out about it
3: before she gets to the train.
0: And she leaves letters to everybody to say goodbye, and she's going back to the sanatorium. Now,
1: the test flight is a hit, but the wind, it rises. And there's that silent pan across the field with just the sound of the wind, uh, because perhaps he's just sensed that... Naoko is, uh, has left with the wind.
0: So there's a double one on that. One is the movie trope of like something is happening off screen that you would have no way of knowing about but somehow you sense it, right? That's totally a thing, right? But the second one is, it's when the plane is flying and he's got his back to it and when he turns back it's like he fully expects to see that plane in pieces on the ground right. and that's when he sees the plane not in pieces on the ground, parked behind him and the test pilot comes over and shakes his hand. So I feel like it's a combination of him disbelieving the fact that I made a plane that didn't crash immediately <laughs> and that somewhere in the distance, something is happening with my wife Yeah, and yeah. she's, she's gone off
3: such that he can't really celebrate the moment that he's always dreamed of because right. he somehow knows that probably on the train to the sanatorium, no is keeled over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, so the, the speaking of celebrations, we skipped over the wedding, which
0: I feel like is the most sort of celebratory right. happy moment for the couple. Cause the, again, the proper couple says, well, you can't live under my roof if you're not married. And he's like, well, fine, we're going to get married. And, you know the the wife is the wife is into it he called there's a there's a ceremony he gets called a chucklehead during the ceremony which i enjoy yeah no the, the the minifig guy though so the wife leaves with the wife uh the, the the minifig's wife leaves with naoko to get her ready and the two men are left together and rather than a funny line the you know the boss says if you really love her you should send her back to the thing because yeah. he believes that she's going to be cured or whatever he's very stern and serious and she basically says look we all know we all accept that she's going to die we just want to have our last days together he says very well right? that's all right so that's their serious moment then i guess together, we're right? having a wedding yeah and you know it is i think it's a nice uh you know i again i have no idea what traditional japanese weddings are like but the whole person coming and announcing themselves and being invited in and it's all very yes. sort of from our perspective very uh interesting and novel and uh you know romantic and scenic and she has the the flowing hair and the, and the nice outfit and uh, the, you know, the boss is very emotional and everyone, you know, it's, it, I think I think it was very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And she gets her moment to be beautiful in this wedding moment, even though she knows, you know, she knows how horribly sick
0: she is. But in this moment, she gets to be. She, she almost collapses when she walks in, like he catches her. Yeah. Right?
2: All right.
1: Well, uh, so after the wind rises and the test light is a hit and they shake the hands. The next thing that happens in the movie is a dream of a landscape on fire. Airplanes burning everywhere. Destruction. As they do death and hey it's your friend japanese boy it's me a caproni this uh, everything fell apart uh, well, you lose a
0: war this sort of thing happens there's your fighter and uh, yeah and then so he sees in the distance so this is this is the yeah. thing that baffles me about this movie um it doesn't well i mean it's miyazaki being miyazaki but like so obviously he loves plants right sure and as you can imagine anyone and uh in japan of his age like What's your favorite old timey plane? It's got to be the Zero. It's a famous plane. It's famous for a reason. This movie is about the person who created the Zero. Up to this point in the movie, we've not seen a single Zero. We've seen all these various prototypes and other things that lead up to it, but nothing like the the plane that flies successfully looks nothing like a Zero. Like it has the the bent gull wings. It is it is not a Zero in any way. The cockpit is different. Everything about it is different. Yeah, it's the previous model. Yeah. Two hours into this movie, ostensibly about the Zero, finally. Miyazaki gets to draw zero Yeah, dream zeros a whole squadron of dream zeros fly by and they fly by but it's not a real zero it's the dream zeros and he's remembering like uh, so when do you At what time period do you think this dream is taking place I peg it as long after his wife has died after the war has ended but long before he himself dies
1: the wikipedia summary says it's it's the summer of 45 i don't know if the text of the movie actually bears that out but the idea is it's the war is over japan has lost and been de- devastated he meets caproni one last time um and 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 basically this is also his moment to let naoko go um and it's sort of the end of his story but it is like up till now the zero hasn't been created
0: and here it is it's like and then he created it and it's beautiful and it's, and it's already over they're all been destroyed yeah. in the war like we never got to see them
1: and he says, and this is echoing back what uh, what Caproni said
0: before about his plans, which is they never came back. Not a single one came back. Yeah, I mean they, they have the kamikazes. Like many things are hinted at in this in this movie, exactly what's going down. But it, it's just it's fascinating to me that this is a movie about the creator of the Zero that does not show the Zero until, like the final scene, and it's a it's a, <laughs> a retroactive dream and, sequence, and the Zero doesn't isn't used as a weapon it's a, a beautiful
1: set of zeros flying information and one of the pilots waves at him and that's it right and they're
0: going off because they're all dead those are yeah. all dead men yep. fly, flying off into wherever they wherever the zeros go yeah. after they're gone
3: yeah that's exactly the time frame that i would have placed it in um it's just post-war because he makes the comment uh he kind of fell apart at the end there yeah. so i think you know just recently the big pile of bodies are really planes but mm-hmm. i think he probably views them as bodies um, you know, is there and he's, I, I don't think, you know, th- this could easily be read as this is him on his deathbed, you know, looking back on things. Right. That's the alternate interpretation, but I don't think that works because he's telling me he has to live. And he's, he's seeing Naoko, but she, she, she disappears. She's telling him he has to go live his life, right? Which yeah, she is tells why it's him not. It's, it's time to move on. I mean, this is, this is effectively the scene where, uh, where, um, you know, the old, the old geezer and up opens the, uh, the adventure book and finds the note from his wife, you know, allowing him to move on. Right. I think it's the same basic thing. You know, now it's time to move on to the next chapter of my life because the military industrial complex is not going to be funding a lot of planes for a while. <laughs> So this is where it gets confusing with the real guy because the real
0: guy like lived until the 80s or something, yeah, and like taught at American yeah. universities about aeronautical design. But he only and, like, designed
1: one more plane right after the war, and then he was done. And he just was sort of like spoke and taught and stuff like that after that.
0: Yeah, because like you know you do such an iconic design, you can you can coast on yeah. that for the rest of your career. And his wife was alive the whole time. There's not nothing, no relation to this. So I feel like it's it's not useful to think about what the real person did. Just think about this story and this character is this movie saying with this story right not what is this movie saying about this guy
2: one of my takeaways from this film is that i only get 10 years of creativity so i need to get on it yeah no that's that's another that's
0: another stake stake in the in the ground i feel like because again the voice of caproni who, who says that like you really only get 10 years of creativity and if you've seen all these terrible miyazaki documentaries where he talks about how his you know how he's never going to do anything good again and his best work is behind him like on the one hand you're like he can't believe that you only have 10 years of good work because he himself has more than 10 years of good work like the whole world is telling him that he must certainly believe that like he may think that his early work is bad and his later work is bad but there's more than 10 years in the middle right but in this movie he's like well stake in the ground 10 you only get 10 years of creativity it's like him and his most sort of self-hating and pessimistic and you know caproni's not a reliable narrator either but no one counters him in the movie and the the idea is like did you you know he asked did you do did you spend your 10 years well did you dedicate yourself to your work did you live and love the best that you could and you know, that, those are the questions presented. I don't think they're answered in any particular affirmative way, but those those are the questions we're presented with. And as a Western audience, I think we might have different answers than the movie intends us to have. That's
1: the end of the movie. So I guess I need to now ask everybody uh, what you thought of the, the Wind Rises, Aline.
2: I like it. I like it a lot. It's beautiful. I can tell, you know, thinking about it compared to earlier Miyazaki movies, they're definitely taking advantage of higher definition, you know, um, more HDS. It's beautiful. Um, I I liked the story. Like I said, I had some. I have some conflicted feelings about how they handle. Hey, this is like a World War II story largely, and there's a lot that we're leaving out of here. Um, o- overall, I like it, and I actually kind of want to watch it again to watch the dubbed version because I watched it with subtitles and I totally recommend it. I liked it better than some other movies, uh, some other Miyazaki movies I've seen, but like I really just visually, it's very, very stunning. And even the beginning, there's no dialogue for the first, I don't know, two or three minutes of the movie. It's just establishing his love of, aviation and of planes and it it really is is beautiful and um I enjoyed that I enjoy the the quiet moments where it's very much an experiential thing as opposed to being bombarded with dialogue that's just a lot of visual information and a lot of beautiful beautiful scenes Steve uh-
3: you know, I'm not entirely sure yet. I've It was only a couple of days ago that I saw this for the first time, and then I watched it again last night. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. And, and weirdly, the first Miyazaki movie that I can think of where it's not just filled with these bizarre, fantastic elements almost makes it a little more confusing to try to parse out. You know, obviously, visually, it's it's an absolute masterpiece. The um, you know, his landscapes are always gorgeous, but here they're just over the top beautiful. Uh, you know, all the work on the planes is fantastically detailed and and the, the flight, of again, feels very flighty. Um, you know, there's a great scene like like the, the, the fact that he so well uh, can take a scene of two engineers talking about a coupling on a plane and turn it exciting by like having them. Sort of visually see the plane take off and then, you know, have them standing there in the field watching it and then suddenly they're back looking at the plane and and considering it. Uh, it, It's it's a masterwork, Um, just gorgeous. And the Joe Hisaishi music, which I always have to highlight, is just as wonderful as ever. Absolutely. I love the score. I love the love story part of this movie. I, I think it's very moving and sweet and incredibly sad. Uh, bawled my eyes out at the end. There's a line reading after he sees Naoko in the last dream sequence where he just says "arigato" twice, but with mm-hmm. such you know an outpouring of pain and relief that it's 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 heartbreaking. Um, that part of it's fantastic. But this feels like a very personal film for Miyazaki in a lot of ways. It really feels like it was a swan song in in ways that are inscrutable to me because i don 't know enough about Miyazaki and am not Miyazaki i don 't share his enormous love for planes, and so I feel like uh at some point not being a Miyazaki historian or biographer. Once the visual elements of this that are so mind blowing become more commonplace to me, because I've seen it a few times, I won't want to revisit it very often. Because honestly, Giro as a character is sort of boring, and his stuff, is, you know, as as an engineer, apart from the beauty of the of the animation, also kind of boring. Uh, so it's a, there's a duality here for me, the love story elements of it that are grafted on to Jiro's life, uh, are wonderful. The rest of it, maybe not so much, but again, after I've thought about it for a while, maybe, you know, it'll click for me and, and I'll, I'll get it. And this will be up there, you know, with the, the other greats of the Miyazaki canon for now, the jury's out. Yeah. I
1: mean, for me, this is a movie made by a, uh, uh a genius, <laughs> basically a master at this and therefore there's always a huge amount of stuff worth appreciating in any Miyazaki movie. He is he does have his things. We know, we all know him. This his things that he likes to do, but they are so beautiful and they are they're so amazing and the way this movie looks and yeah, you know, it is obsessed with planes. I feel like this is in some ways the ultimate Miyazaki movie if this had truly been and it may still be, but hopefully not. His last movie. Um I felt like it was really him saying, OK, I'm just going to make a movie about planes now. All right. <laughs> because it is so much about and about early 20th century Japan and about the Japanese countryside and about the weather and all these things that totally are what he wants to talk about. And it's beautiful. And I would say that the the tuberculosis romance kind of thing to me feels um it, it it is well done, and yet it feels very cliched. Like I feel like this is a story that it's it's just a classic, kind of a doomed romance story. It's well executed, um, but the thing that that has gotten me both times I've watched this movie is, I think Miyazaki wants to tell a delightful story about a creative genius who created something that is part of the Japanese soul and part of their great cultural accomplishments which is this airplane and he wants to be able to tell that story without engaging fully i think in the complicity i'm going and i'm not going to phrase this as you know anybody who was in Japan in that p- period are they complicit in what their government did uh, you know n- Not necessarily, but I would say the airplane designers are complicit and we get three of them. Not only do we get Jiro, but we get Junkers and we get Caproni. Those are the three airplane designers of the three Axis powers in World War Two. I think Miyazaki really does not want to talk about the fact that philosophically... um, I know that these, these I'm building tools of destruction, but what can I do? It's my art, and this is the only way I can bring my art into existence. I think he's in denial about it. I think it makes this movie very confused. And as a result, while this is a beautiful movie, I think it's kind of immoral and a failure. Because of that, because I think Miyazaki does not want to engage with the truth. He dances around it, but he, at the center, he's like you know but jiro in the end knows that he must do this it's his obsession or whatever and i don't feel like jiro pays a a price japan pays a price but jiro doesn't really pay a price and instead he gets movies made out of him because of this thing that he created as a part of the military industrial complex of imperial japan and he goes to he goes to germany to work with the germans and he he has dreams about the italian i it just it stops me every time and uh, you know maybe i'm reading more into this than than one should But I just don't think Miyazaki, I think he's trying to skate away from it here so that he can lionize this guy without really engaging with this guy's personal culpability. And maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe he's tricked us all. And that's Miyazaki's whole point here is that you have great artists who are great, even though they do terrible things, but, um, it stops me cold both times I've watched this movie. It's like, it's a beautiful work of art that I can't endorse in any way.
0: So let me, let me give you an alternate interpretation that might help you, uh, get a different angle so like i said in the beginning this isn't actually about the guy who made the zero um it's a fictional character who ends up making a zero but the things that happen in his life are not the things that happen in the actual guy's life uh, aside from the the plane making stuff right sure so, and i think and i think the character in the movie mostly fits with what you said and that the character in the movie both doesn't want to fully engage with his culpability and at various points can't actually fully engage because he doesn't actually understand it especially in the beginning and by the end he kind of does right but that's the character in the movie and I think part of the lesson in the movie is see how easy it is to get caught up in your dreams of Caproni and your dreams of airplanes and end up doing this thing I fully believe that the character does not engage but I think the movie and by extension Miyazaki do reckon with it in, in as much as possible with a caveat that i'll get to in, in a second in that the character in this movie faces uh, his life is worse than the actual zero designer's life he loses the love of his life to tuberculosis he has a, a tragic romance that doesn't exist in the real guy's life miyazaki put that into his life as maybe not as the consequence of but sort of it's the it's the terrible thing. It's the manifestation of the terrible thing that he's doing. It's the consequence in his own life. I'm not saying because you make warplanes, your wife died. But, it you know, it's not the story of the guy. The guy's wife lived and they he had to continue to have a long life and died in the 80s, right? And Miyazaki doesn't tell that story. Miyazaki does not lionize this person, doesn't give him an easy life that's like, well, you made some planes and killed some people, or whatever. The last scene in this movie, the movie is reckoning with the thing. The last scene is... You know, fire, destruction, wreckage, dead people going off into, you know, Valhalla or wherever on the airplanes and our our supposed hero, whether he reckoned with it or not, lost the love of his life, not to an airplane disaster, but essentially it's a punishing thing that happened to him because the movie made it happen to him. Yes, to have a tragic love story, but also there's no reason you needed to bring that into a movie if you're just going to say this is this great guy. The whole Violence is never justified. I want to live in a world with pyramids, the Axis powers, the secret police, the the shadows on the wall in Germany. Right. This movie is subtle with how it it deals with that stuff. It doesn't hit you over the head. But I feel like the movie comes down very firmly on the side of whether or not these characters understand it. Terrible things happened that have consequences. Like the movie ends on scene of destruction. Right. And in in this fantasy world with dead people. Now, the real problem I feel like is, and it's problem with a lot of Miyazaki movies, is my impression of how he works from seeing the documentaries and uh, seeing all the movies is that he has an idea for a movie. He has maybe a couple of scenes or ideas in mind. He starts making storyboards and he stops when he's got a movie length thing. (laughs) And whether or not that that constitutes a complete story, it doesn't matter. Like this movie just ends. He has a bunch of scenes. He plays them out. He has a series of events. And at a certain point, two hours have elapsed. He's got the end of he's got the whatever the number of storyboard pages he was going to do. He's done. And despite the fact that the story isn't over, it's like, well, I've got to wrap this up. He has difficulties with endings is what I'm saying. And in this movie, he luxuriated in the beginning and middle part of the story that when he came to the end, he has to wrap it up like she goes off to the thing to die. And he's like. And the rest of World War II, and yeah, la, 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 la. and then he's got that one scene. And to the bring Scarecrow all home. man
3: is a prince. Yeah.
0: And it doesn't, <laughs> it's not good storytelling. And many of his movies suffer from this. If you look at like he, decide, he decides how he's going to wrap it up in the end, it's like he's, he's making it up, literally making it up as he goes along. He's writing storyboards and people are animating it. He doesn't know how the movie's going to end. He doesn't know what the next storyboard's going to be. Neither do they, because they're just drawing the things that he's done before, right? It's this rolling process. And I'm not a recommended way to make a satisfying story. And that I feel like hurts him here because he has to convince you that both he and the movie are actually trying to reckon with this despite the fact that all the movie up to that point was leading up to a reckoning that they haven't got to yet and he's got to do in this weird dream sequence in the end which I agree is not successful or satisfying but I I think that this movie is actually trying to tackle those issues partially by showing that the characters in the movie don't but that the person making the movie does understand it and the best he could do is a final scene of destruction. But then he's also got to wrap up his thing about the wind rising and the, and the blah, 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 all the other stuff. And, and you know, like it, it may partially be true that, I, you know, it certainly is true that Japan itself has difficulty reckoning with its, uh, you know, difficult parts in the past. Right. This is true about the Japanese government. It's true. Like and Miyazaki has talked about this with the whole. Uh, you know, whatever the the abuse of like uh, Korean women or whatever it was, the comfort women and all that stuff and how he's condemned the government for not actually admitting uh, fault and apologizing and so on and so forth. So I feel like Miyazaki himself definitely has much stronger feelings than are expressed in this movie. But the movie is a, a lot of the movie is about how easy it is to not realize what's going on. And then the movie ends. Right. So I I totally understand saying it doesn't work because you didn't actually finish it and hit that nail in. But I think there's enough in the movie for me to feel like it is a fairly artful and very sort of sideways and abstract way to address this presented to a country that doesn't want to face this. Like that if you had thrown it in their face, they wouldn't they wouldn't have absorbed it. So he's coming in the side door and saying, here's you. Here's us. See how see how we could be misled in this way. And then just having the the final scene with the, the the softener of his dead wife ghost floating away, but really tons of destruction and giant fiery clouds and dead people everywhere.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you're sort of defending him by saying uh, he doesn't he doesn't know what he's doing at the end of the movie, which well, I no, he doesn't, he I mean, doesn't know how to end movies. Like yeah. he didn't,
0: he doesn't, he didn't nail it home in a way that you can totally be sure. They're like, Oh, I now I see it now. And and the characters in the movie embody everything that you said, but I feel like the movie itself is a, a very subtle, perhaps overly subtle message to its viewers that, 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 that this is where, this is where we went wrong. Right. And see how easy it is yeah. to go wrong in that way.
1: I, I don't think I agree with that. I think that it truly, I think he's towing a line. I think you're exactly right that one of the things he's trying to do is how to express this to a Japanese audience that may not really want to hear exactly what he wants to say. And so he's so- potentially softening it. But, you know, I, I, I feel like I think it's a dangerous thing when you make a movie that is lionizing, um, but
0: then but he kills the guy's fictional wife. Like he makes it a terrible, He does terrible things. It's the worst thing you could possibly do. Tuberculosis kills her. Yeah. I mean, I know, but like he, that didn't happen to him. He didn't have this terrible sadness and, and melancholy. And I feel like that is the the embodiment, the, the sort of the, the corporeal form of the bad things that he has done is this fictional. That's Miyazaki's yeah. judgment
1: upon the real historical figure is that he gives yes, him a yes. consumptive life to die and be tragic.
0: Yeah, like the pain, like he, that he needs to have pain in his life because he doesn't he doesn't experience the pain of the machines that he's made. Like, it's clear that, like, you know, him going on to talk about how this great plane he designed and he's touring American universities, that the actual person probably never actually reckoned with the pain that he caused, whereas this person yeah. has pain visited upon him because he can't, he doesn't, the character never actually does experience what's, the war is like an abstract thing, even when it
3: kind of comes home. Mm-hmm. But this dead wife is a real thing. Yeah, I would say lionizing is not what he's doing here with this Jira character. I mean, he makes it very clear throughout the film that this character is so entirely wrapped up in plain design that he is oblivious to everything going on around him including the scene where you know effectively the Gestapo is chasing somebody around downtown Germany and, he's like, and not they my just problem go, huh mm-hmm. that's that was weird and then they mm-hmm. move on with their life and then
0: and then Miyazaki shows like he Miyazaki shows like the scary shadows on the wall and the people like Miyazaki doesn't yeah. shy away from what's going down there Jiro doesn't you know pursue or try to be heroic in that moment it's just a curiosity to him because he's so disconnected I mean when the secret police is trying to get him he doesn't understand it. He's like well whatever yeah. Um but the movie I feel like it takes it not you know, it doesn't hammer it, but it, it goes there. It shows you what's going on.
3: Well it, it is very much lionizing, you know, his the creative Spirit that drives him, you know his engineering brilliance, all of that stuff. It's, yeah. it's and obviously, you know, at least in his youth, he was a friend to all children and uh, an enemy to all bullies, uh, and had sweet judo moves. And that's the voice of Caproni too, right?
1: Is well, you've got to build you. You, it's the creative thing. It's like you've got to make this thing because it's a wonderful thing,
0: right? But that's that's his internal voice
1: rationalizing it, you know. And I think Miyazaki feels that the zero is a wonderful thing with baggage, right? I think right. that's what he's sort of saying here is that right. look at this wonderful creation, but consider the context of it. I just don't feel like the, the, the contents of the movie goes far enough to, to do that.
3: Yeah. that. That could be. But I, I will say that, that in spite of the, the elements of his personality that he is lionizing, I think the movie is very critical of the fact that, that he's oblivious to this stuff. I mean, he's effectively oblivious to the fact that his wife is dying in the bed next to him, such that even when she says, oh, no, go ahead and light a smoke, you know, he goes ahead and lights, he, he oh. lights the damn thing and smokes it next to her. <laughs> Miyazaki can relate to because he's always smoking. I, yeah. I, I, I will agree that maybe, you know, the lionization of, of the good elements of the character kind of override the subtle notes of, of criticism, but I, I think it's there. Um, you know, whether it's entirely successful, I think it's going to be very personal, yeah. but... Uh but but I get both both of the uh the views you guys have there.
0: So the art style of the plane, speaking of the things that are made. So throughout the movie we see him making uh, what are essentially real planes. You can go look them up and you can say, Oh, that kind of looks like the one in the movie. Oh, I see that that's that one. But they're they're slightly cartoonishly exaggerated, just like, you know, the characters in the movie. They look human, but they're a little bit they're mostly proportionally, but they have the big round Miyazaki heads and jaws and mouths and all those stuff. Similarly, the planes are like that. They are the size and shape and proportions of the actual planes that he was making and at various points they show all the technical details and they're very sort of realistic looking but they're a little bit puffy and cartoony they're a little bit exaggerated there are a few extra curves there there's a little bit bulges to show muscle for the parts they they move they kind of they don't pulse like the bombs in the beginning but they're a little bit cartoony um, because that's sort of like creative process and this thing that he's making and his failures and his success and it's an abstract thing disconnected from the actual purpose of the plane which by the way his dreams keep reminding him oh i make beautiful machines but they're gonna bomb people <laughs> and everybody's gonna die like in his dreams is him like his subconscious both convincing itself that everything is doing is fine and repeatedly reminding itself probably not fine but the planes are kind of cartoony The only planes that are not cartooning in this movie are the zeros at the end, which are dead on exactly proportionally straight, fine, detailed like the actual machine. And they look way more serious than all the other planes. And these are the real zeros used in real war with the much more realistic smoke clouds and everything going through. And when those zeros fly off, it's almost like they rotoscoped them. It's almost like, I mean, we know they didn't because, you know, it's all hand-drawn animation. But I feel like it, it snaps me into... Oh, well, this is a real plane that went in a real war, not a cartoon plane that has a little puffy engine, poof, 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 and has a little thing and a little engine that couldn't swoops and has the sun glinting off of the thing. These are finely detailed, exactly proportioned, perfect reproductions of the Zero. And they feel materially different to me than all the other planes in the movie, paper, metal, canvas or otherwise. And I feel like that is... Again, he, it's not good storytelling that he has to wrap it up in one scene, but he's got one scene. He's got all the dead bodies. He's got the giant smoke cloud. He's got the dead wife. He's got the zeros going off to die, and those zeros are drawn like the real thing. And, you know, I I don't... I'm not going to say this movie is super successful at what it's trying to do, but I do feel like it was trying to engage with this subject matter in its own way. Uh, and I agree that it's not trying to lionize the the creator, mostly because the creator's not in this movie what's in this movie is someone who makes the plane and has terrible things happen to him as as punishment slash redemption slash whatever
2: and also you know fridging the wife
0: well i mean she's not she's not fridged to motivate him he's not motivated that's to draw true. planes because his wife is taken from him at all like that's that's true. His motivation although his sole success arrives when she shows up and they get married yeah because he can finally concentrate more fully on his work so he can just hold her hand while she dies
1: Uh, which is what his friend tells him at the beginning right which is well i gotta go get married because you gotta you gotta have a family to support you while you work all the time
0: yeah which which i think is another so a lot of these movies are miyazaki grappling with himself like miyazaki's work work ethic uh and what he expects of his animators as as shown in the various documentary things is similarly unhealthy but i think He also understands that it's unhealthy. Like, this movie is throwing in our face the idea that you're going to dedicate yourself to your work in this way. And in some ways, it is fitting and honorable to do so, but in other ways, you're the worst person ever. And so it's like, if you want to dedicate the expected and requisite amount of your energy to your career, you need someone else to do literally everything else for you. And of course, that's a woman who will handle everything else in your life and give you love and attention and take care of you so you can pour yourself entirely into your work. And I'm not entirely sure that Miyazaki really believes that this is particularly healthy because every time he shows something like this, it's not... It doesn't come off to me as if he's saying and this is the way you should do it. And so when the when the friend says, "Oh, you need you need a, a wife at home to help you work." Like, do we believe it? Does that work out for him? And in the end that's not how it like he they end up being together and she's not taking care of him and he ends up, you know, not particularly taking care of her either, but like no. they're they're more sort of equals alongside each other, each heading off to their own death, her to her literal death and him to his sort of spiritual death of making the zero. All right. Well, I think we've reached the end, but we have talked a lot about
1: Miyazaki's last movie until he releases another movie, which he's apparently going to do. So that's good. And I'm sure we'll pick John will pick another Miyazaki movie that is interesting to uh, they're all interesting to talk about the next time we do this. But for now, I did not
3: think we'd have this much to say about this. It's amazing, isn't it? Well,
0: you know, I knew we would have a lot because it is, like I said, the most adult movie, which means it is not. It doesn't just lay itself out there and it's not just all fun and rainbows and wackiness. There is a rainbow in movie, but it's not all that. There's just one rainbow. All right. Uh, Aline Sims, thank you
1: so much for being here.
2: Thank you, I think. (laughs) I have Uh, to think about this movie more. Yeah. Steve Lutz, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Before I go, shall we drop
3: by my house? I have some excellent wine. Oh, excellent. And uh, John Syracuse, uh, uh,
1: when you go down the mountain, you will remember nothing of this not me (laughs) is the wind still rising Jason and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of the incomparable now go down the mountain and speak no more of this you have to live you have to live the wind is rising and you must live